All right, y'all turn to Genesis chapter 30. That's the book y'all studying, right? Genesis? Is that where we're at? I hope I didn't study the wrong thing. So Mitch sent me, a, he sent me, I do this to him. We swap back and forth some on preaching duties, and we've actually got Mitch coming up and preaching at our, uh, at our marriage conference in the fall. We do three marriage conferences a year at Snowbird. Mitch is going to come up and preach, and, uh, and I'll give him a text because I don't like to break. We preach through books of the Bible, too. I don't like to break out of the text. I, so I'm the camp pastor at Snowbird Outfitters where your students come to camp. I'm also teaching pastor at Red Oak Church. And Red Oak and Three Rivers have partnered. We've partnered on a lot of things together, uh, just a lot of cool initiatives. And, and Mitch is a guy who I think gets me, which is, um, which is a big deal because not a lot of people get me. And, uh, and so we've got this, this really neat common, I think, just like a kindred spirit where the Lord's kind of knit us together. And I was, uh, so it's exciting hearing what God's doing, listening to these folks give these reports, these updates. It's really exciting. Hope Village things just like so exciting. I mean, y'all, y'all are part of a church that's not normal. You need to understand that. I was driving to, I was flying to, uh, I better not say it. This stuff gets on the interweb, right? So uh, I don't want to incriminate myself or another church. But I was, uh, we start that timer so I, so I don't go too long. Um, just don't preach an hour and 40 minutes. That's happened before. So <clears throat> don't worry, I won't do that. I got a little clock. So uh, I, was, I was going down to this church and I was preaching at their missions conference. This is going to be awesome. We talk about local stuff. Learn that from y'all. So... Uh, I'm looking, I'm doing my research. Like before I came here this morning, I listened to the last four Sunday sermons. Just kind of gives me some context. And so it's real helpful going down there. And, uh, so I'm looking at this church and I'm realizing they have, uh, over $20 million in debt on their current building. And now in their defense, it was a previous leadership issue and there's the god's brought the right men and women in place to 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 turn the ship and get it back on course and so i'm excited about what god's doing at that church and so but it's a large church it's a big church so it's like a mega church and so i'm gonna be preaching saturday night at missions conference uh, to all their missionaries that they support a lot of people have come in from all over the world and all their local ministries and then on sunday morning all three of their services and i'm looking numerically at where this church is at and so they're a $5.5 million annual budget, and they're trying to raise an additional $250,000 for missions. And I thought, those numbers don't add up. Now, we don't give $250,000 to missions at, my little, at our little church. Like, we don't, we don't see that much money come through in a year. But, but systematically and then, um, like, like, as far as percentage, it just it was disturbing. And I was, so I was like, I got, to t- I got to vent to somebody that knows my heart and won't think i'm gossiping or being ugly so i texted mitch i was like can you believe this <laughs> you know just ran out you know this massive text and he said dude he said he said good lord i'm praying that you go down there and that god pillages their resources for the work of the kingdom <laughs> and uh it was a real encouraging uh conference it was an awesome event i got a lot of new insight once i got there and god's doing some cool things to that church there's a like-mindedness here and so mitch texts me every tuesday Something that he's praying for me, Bible verse, something like that. It's just awesome. So um, it's an honor to be here. And our, sister, our our churches really do function like sister churches. We're doing work together in the Himalayas. 
a couple other areas, and, uh, and we, we've got some shared membership where people leave us and they end up here, and people have left here and end up there, and it's just pretty awesome. So I live about two hours and a half from here in Andrews, North Carolina. It's a little mountain town. People call Rome a little town. Rome's not a little town. Y'all got stuff like Starbucks and then chain restaurants, all right? So it's not, that means you're not a little town. And uh, so anyway, I live in a little town of about 1,500 people, tucked in the mountains and uh, very destitute economically, um, and also a very large uh, crisis when it comes to the fostering community. And so a lot of like-mindedness in the way that we, we target our community and, and initiatives, and God's uh, given us a lot of favor with local government. So love this church, love you people. And uh, so let's study a really funny, crazy, weird, awesome text together in Genesis chapter 30. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. So um, picking up in our study of Genesis and, uh, and going back to the beginning of this thing, um, it, this is such a formative study in terms of how you like how your theology forms your understanding of redemptive history. And in our student ministry recently at our church, we started a, a series where we're looking at doctrine through history, and we're looking at doctrine through narrative. So we're looking at stories that teach doctrines. And we just camped out in Genesis for a while because what the Bible's doing is it's telling one big story, right? It's a meta-narrative. It's a huge overarching story, a redemptive story that, that lasts throughout all of history. But so much of the foundations of that story take place in the book of Genesis. And so a couple weeks ago, in chapter 28, God visits Jacob, who is a deceiver. So to set Jacob up, we go back, we study Jacob's life. He's a deceiver. Jacob hung out, like, in the house with the, with the women and children while the men were out doing uh, the, the type of work that they were expected to do. Jacob then deceived his father and the rest of the family and, 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 and took what wasn't rightfully his. So he's a deceiver. Um, one, of the, one of the pastors in the last couple of weeks referred to him as a sissy, which I appreciated. Um, and, and so you really, like, like that's really sort of the characteristic of this guy up until this point in the story. That's literally like what, he's, what is characteristic of him. But what happened was uh, we saw in, in chapter 28 the conversion of Jacob. Where And listen, y'all, when somebody gets saved, like literally the, the terminology of Scripture is that the old is gone, the new has come. They're buried with Christ in death, raised to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 says that they are like a new creation, and we see that with Jacob. He's a different person. In fact, when he arrives here in, in the land of his family and his kin, and he starts to work for his wives, uh, we see 14 years of faithful work no deception. And so we come to the story this morning, and what's happened is Jacob has worked and worked and worked for these two wives. You, you guys, you know the story of the deception. He thought he was going to marry Rachel, and he ends up with Leah, and then he gets Rachel in 14 years. And so that's where we pick up the story, is right at the end of the birth wars that just happened between those two wives. So you got this crazy birth wars going on. Jacob goes from one wife to two wives to three wives to four wives. Now he's got four wives, a bunch of kids, and and in some stroke of God's sovereignty, you're starting to see the forming of a nation, even amidst the, like the, the really messy situation that Jacob finds himself in. So 14 years in, two, two wives turns to four wives and about a dozen kids. I come from a family with eight kids and we're lightweights compared to these guys. All right. So, so like here we're years into this thing and Jacob, uh, comes to Laban and we're going to pick the story up. Verse 25 of Genesis 30. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. So remember, Rachel hadn't had any kids. The other three wives had had a lot of kids. 
Finally, Rachel has a kid. Jacob has assumed that Rachel will be the wife through whom the covenant promises of God come, through, the, through whom the, the Messiah would, would come. And so she is definitely his favored wife. We've seen, as Kent Hughes points out in his commentary, that uh, God has visited the lowly Leah in her lowly state, which is a common theme throughout Scripture, that God visits the poor in spirit and the lowly. Jesus even started his ministry by proclaiming that. And now we see that God has visited Rachel in her low estate. And so she's been blessed with a child. That child's name is Joseph. And so Jacob comes to Laban, his father-in-law, who's also his employer. So employer, father-in-law, boss. It's a tricky situation that he's in the middle of. And so he says, I want to go back to, I want to go home. I want to go. My family hasn't met my, my wife or my other wife or my other wife or the other wife. And or any of their grandkids. So we all want to go back and so they can, so they can meet them. And then also, that was the land of promise. So God's covenant promise to Jacob was not here where he is with Laban, but it was there where God had promised that he would make his descendants a nation. Verse 26, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if, you have found, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So what happens is Jacob comes to Laban, who is his father-in-law, and he says, give me my wives, give me my kids, we're going to go. I've served you faithfully. And, and what we know to be true is that Laban is not a man of high character. He's not a man of integrity. And so he has robbed Jacob for all of these years. He's not been... Uh, faithful to his word on numerous occasions. In fact, later Jacob says, 10 times you went back and changed my wages, like 10 times. I don't know if you ever worked for that boss. I did one time, and it's not fun. It's difficult to be in that situation. And so Jacob has been faithful, even in Laban's unfaithfulness. And so so uh, Jacob says, I want to go and take my family, not asking for anything else. You might remember that when Jacob was coming into this land, he said to the Lord at the point of his conversion, his interaction with God at Bethel, he said, look, all I'm asking is that you'll give me food, clothing, take care of my physical needs until I get back here. He hasn't asked for anything else, and God's done that, and Jacob's okay with that. And so he's reminding Laban, hey, look, I've been faithful. But Laban says, okay, here's the thing. I've learned by divination. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, he's talking to demons. It's pagan practice. But he also recognizes the Lord. And, but what we know is that Laban, as a shrewd businessman, knows that Jacob is responsible. Jacob's work practices, work ethic, commitment to the company, commitment to the family has brought great like expansion of resources to Laban. Laban doesn't want to lose Jacob because if Laban loses Jacob, Laban loses money. Jacob's made him a lot of money. Laban's a rich man. Jacob is a poor man. We get a lot of insight into Laban's character here, too, because... Laban's grandchildren are Jacob's children and Laban's response is I don't want you to leave because if you leave it will not, it will be like less profitable for me so if you leave I'm going to take a financial hit so if you don't know what kind of man Laban is he doesn't say no 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 don't take my grandkids no no, no don't take my daughters like I got a daughter that's getting married in September and moving to a foreign land to spend the rest of her life on the mission field my grandkids are going to grow up on another continent and I think that's a glorious thing and a, and a wonderful calling and something I've dreamed about and prayed for from the time she was in my wife's womb. But thinking about the distance and not, you know, and I said, okay, just so you know, I will be there for one month every year and my grandkids will know me 
Because like, like I want them to know their grandfather. Laban has, like in Laban's economy, that doesn't register. He doesn't care about that. All he cares about is money. And so he's like, if you leave, it's going to cost me a lot. So verse 28, name your wages and I will give it to you. This is what men like Laban do. They bargain. But he's, so he's wheeling and dealing. He's like, look, you need a raise? You need a 401k? You need dental? You need medical? Company car? Company camel? It's like, tell me what you need. We'll keep you around. <clears throat> Uh, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. Now watch this, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. So Jacob says, all right, here's the deal. I don't like, I don't want more money. I don't want more stuff. I don't want you to give me a pay, like a pay increase. I've been faithful. I've done what God called me to do here. I've done what God told me to do here. And what you need to understand is that the increase in your profit has come from the Lord. It hasn't come from me. Jacob right here doesn't leverage. So Jacob's not interested in leveraging this against Laban. Jacob's just interested in being obedient to the Lord. And he's like, God called me. This scripture tells us, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And be a person of integrity and be a person who works hard. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I I got a plan. Work, eat. Don't work, don't get to eat. Like there's no place in God's economy for lazy Christians. So like at your work, if you take 30 minute bathroom breaks, sit on the toilet on Facebook for 45 minutes at a time, like look for ways to dodge responsibility. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not that person, but you know that person, right? Like, like God's saying men and women of the book and like God's people are men and women of integrity and the workplace for most of us. The workplace is a huge platform for us to display our testimony, just in our actions. Like just do, like put in a good day's work. Remember my like like I remember my dad one time. I was I was 18 years old. This was my folks were my folks split up and um, but at the time I remember I went to work for this guy and like a lot of you I, like when I was in seventh grade I started working long days all, all day every day in the summer and. I'd, so I'd had several jobs at this point, but like I'd worked for an uncle for a couple years, uh, a couple summers, and he was real good to me. He gave me five bucks a day. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> I remember my dad said, you know, this is like job training. You're basically you're, like, that's how this works. You're learning a trade. And it was, it was a, a skilled deal. I was learning a trade. Um, but I then decided I didn't like that trade or the wages. So the third summer I went to work for another guy and I made pretty good money with that guy. I was able to buy my first car and so I got out of high school and went to work for this man. And then some guys at work started talking about how Rick was making more money than everybody else. Well, I didn't know it, but Rick had a degree from Rutgers University in agriculture. So he should have been making more money because he was more qualified and he was making more money for the company. It was, a, it was an ag company. And we did like fertilizer and lime and stuff like that. So I was 18. I had already like, I'm driving a truck with no CDL. I'm driving a fertilizer t- truck like fertilizing people's pastures and stuff. I'm like, it's a pretty good gig and I'm making pretty good money. And the guy promised me a pretty good, uh, we call it bonus for the summer. And I remember, I remember these guys start bickering in the, in the shop one day and it turned into this big blow up. And I remember several people got fired and they, they tried to sue the employee, the, the employer. And I remember going to my dad and saying, can you believe this? And he said, look, man, you agreed to work for this guy for a certain wage. You shouldn't have agreed to that if you didn't want to do that. Like, it's just like work principles. It's not the main point of this text, by the way. We'll get to that. But if you're a Christian, you should work hard at work. 
Like that reflects on Jesus. If you're going to work fast food, you should show up early, stay late, don't be obsessed with punching a clock. We work in our in the Snowbird Leadership Institute. We have about 30 kids a year go through that. We're training 150 interns this summer. And these are principles that we will hammer them with. You do not deserve anything except hell and condemnation. Let's start there and it'll get better. Like, but where what in the American economy, we start here and say, I deserve grocery list of everything I deserve because I'm special and then we can work backwards from there. That's not how God works. Jacob, at his conversion, understood the very nature of his soul, that he was dark, he was a deceiver, he was bound for hell, that he deserved hell. God had rescued him miraculously and reinstated his covenant promises that he had made to Jacob's granddaddy. He made those covenant promises afresh and anew to Jacob. In Genesis 28, verses 10 through 20, he reinstates that covenant promise and says, you are a child of promise. And here's what we have to understand three rivers like you don't earn god's favor but when you become a child of god you then act like a child of god that's just like normal behavior for a christian i've got two adopted children a son and a daughter my two youngest are adopted like there's never a day where i say whoa, 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 before you come to the table what have you done for me today have you earned your adoption no i don't like they got my name they got a social security card they got like the government straight up lied and gave us a new birth certificate that says they're born in Murphy, North Carolina. No, they weren't. They were born in Uganda. You are liars, but we'll take it. All right, it's a legal document. Okay, so like new identity, wiped out the old identity, got a new identity. Like here they they got a bed, they got a place at the table. They got they call me daddy. I like I got my last name. I make jokes all the time. I'm like that when when we're in public and they're like daddy and people are like trying to figure it out. I'm like hey, look like their mom. So like like it's. <laughs> But so, but what, here's, here's the thing. Like there's never a point the, the principal of the school will call me. My kids go to public school. The principal of the school will call me and say, and we work with the, with the elementary school really close, really cool partnership with the local public schools. She'll call me and say, I need you to come uh, by the school. And I know what that means is your son needs his behind tanned. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he is out of control and unruly. He's six years old and he's about to light the school on fire and blow up the playground. And he's shooting lights out with a slingshot. Like, please come by and do something because our hands are tied by the U.S. government. And I'm like, okay, I'll be right by there. Okay, so like I don't roll in and say, that's it. You're not my kid anymore. Right? Don't, we, don't, we don't threaten identity. Identity is secure. Like, uh, adoption secures identity. Jacob knows who he is. So, like, not, there's nothing else that Jacob's going to get from Laban that's going to en- enhance or enrich his identity. He is a, an adopted, covenantal child of God, and he gets it. So he's just working. Shear the sheep. Shear, feed the sheep. and Pluck the sheep. Well, I don't pluck them. I don't know what you do to sheep. They're hairy. They're woolly. They live outside. That's all I got. Like, we don't even eat them in our society, you know? So, like, 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 I don't, like, except at Arby's, you get one of them gyro sandwiches, and it's, and I'm like, I don't think that's probably, I asked the girl. I'm like, is that for real? Like, is that lamb? You know? Or is that spam? Because I'm cool with either. I just want to know. <laughs> like, so, so Laban is, Laban is holding this thing over Jacob's head and Jacob gets it like my action don't define who I am. Who I am defines my action. See, Jacob understands the value of sonship 
and he's beginning to understand and appreciate the value of covenant relationship with God. All Laban understands. Laban understands the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Yeah, he doesn't understand value. And so what you've got this, this, this contrast in these two people where Jacob is showing us what it looks like to be a son of God. The deceiver, the sissy, the conniver has now become the man of integrity who understands who he is before God and is willing to do whatever it takes to just be obedient to Jesus. And Laban is now showing us what a deceiver looks like. And so there's this really intense moment where, where Jacob's like, I just work for I just do what God told me to do. Can't pay me anything else. To, to, to like, you can't buy my integrity. He says in verse 31, or 30, for you had little before I came and it's increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he's like, I got to, I got to take care of my, I got all these kids, man. I don't know if you noticed, like we got a bunch of kids. Y'all know kids are expensive. Young people, you cost a lot of money. <laughs> Used to do things like go on vacation. <clears throat> and I had five kids. <laughs> Start paying for college and vehicles and insurance. And <clears throat> I'm sweating right now thinking about it. So, so Jacob's like, it costs a lot of money to be a dad. And I got like a bunch of kids. And I just, I got to take care of. So he's starting to think about his future. So what a good father and a good husband does. He's planning for his future. And so he said, verse 31, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you'll do this for me. I'll again pass your flock and keep it. Now, we know from a later date, uh, a later reference, that he spends several more years here. It turns into a 20-year sojourn under Laban. And so he's like, he's like don't give me anything. You ain't giving me You ain't holding nothing over me. But I, here's the deal. Let me work for my own herd and leave with that herd. He's a man of integrity. I don't want to hand out. Um, I will again pass your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it speckled and spotted sheep. Peter Piper, pickle, pepper, speckled. You say that a bunch of times. You, you got to be careful. Say it slow. Removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will be for uh, will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not spe- speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs is found with me shall be counted stolen. Okay, so here's this is just kind of crazy. Jacob says, All right, here's the deal. So, and in, 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 uh, I found a really cool article on Bedouin uh, herding practices. You can find some cool stuff on the internet. And so this was really rare that there would be, so typically these animals will be solid colored. So it's a really rare thing that one will be spotted, speckled, striped, anything like that. So this is like, I heard one, one commentator said, this would be like um, your father-in-law owns a massive Chevy dealership and you're going to separate and part ways and you say, okay, here's the deal. All I want is for you to give me all of the Fords that get traded in this year the profit from the sales on those vehicles. And the guy was like, okay, we're a Chevy dealership. We get like one Ford a month or something like that, you know? And then, and then all of a sudden for like the next six years, like a hundred Fords a week get traded in, you know? So like all of a sudden this guy's riches begin to increase. This guy's riches begin to decrease. It's kind of like that. It's like Jacob saying, give me something that's really not going to provide for me anything. It's a, it, it, like a common shepherding practice, like if you're an under-shepherd or a subcontractor, what you would typically do is you would get 10 to 20% of the, of the herd. These numbers would be way lower than 10%. Like this is such a rare thing. Like, like genetically, there just aren't going to be many of these animals. So you understand what's happening. Jacob's saying, give me all the spotted animals. 
and then I'll go start my own herd with the spotted animals. And Laban's thinking, yep, there's not many spotted animals. This is a good deal. So Laban's like excited about this. Verse 34, Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, now Laban, listen to what he does. That day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it, and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. So Laban takes all of the sheep that would potentially throw, that's a livestock term, that would throw speckled, spotted, or or, or like multicolored sheep. He pulls them out of the herd and gives them to his sons. Now watch this. And set a distance of three journeys, three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured uh, the rest of Laban's flock. So he takes all that, he agrees to Jacob's terms, then pulls all of those out and sends them with his sons three days journey. So Jacob's left with nothing but a solid flock. So Jacob is essentially left with nothing at this point. Then Jacob took, now this is where the story gets crazy. When, when Mitch assigned me, sent me this text, I was like, oh, this is the thing about the sticks and the, okay, I've always wanted to know what was going on. And so this is good. I get to study it. And I can tell you, I still don't know what's going on, but let's read it together anyway. Then Jacob took fresh, I spent a lot of time this week. Like, I, I don't know how many commentators I read. And like all of them are like, some people say, and they'll give you like five op- different options. Nobody's like, here's exactly what it means. You know, so, uh, so we'll do our best to work through this. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is the water in places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the, toward the stripe and all the, uh, and all the black and the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flocks, he would not lay them there. So it's just like crazy. He's taking, he takes these sticks. He creates striped. Some people are like, oh, yes, this is like this is a visual stimuli like like that would create a certain type of genetic predisposition to the offspring. And you're going, man, I don't believe like that doesn't even make sense. Why don't we do that now? Right. But then there there like there does seem to be, especially if you've ever messed with livestock, like there there are ways to like I used to. So my background is in livestock, so horses and cattle. And I, I can remember trying to. I remember trying to get a buckskin colored colt out of out of a brood mare that we had, and I remember doing the math. Okay, the, the, you need a mare that's this color, and if you have a, a, a stud that's one of these two colors, then your chances of throwing a buckskin colt are twenty three percent. I mean, people have studied this stuff out; they know what they're doing. And so you're trying to throw a certain color. There's you know there's but most horses are like brown light brown dark brown you know like some shade of like sorrel chestnut whatever so like to throw something that's got a unique color then increases the value so in the livestock industry if you get a buckskin or what's called a gruyo which is like a really cool grayish blue color with a black line down the back like that kind of like those things sell they bring more money in the show world the rodeo world or whatever and so what it seems to be happening is jacob has figured out how to work with this dude remember this guy's been a shepherd for like almost two decades at this point. And so I don't, I don't know if he understands the way recessive genes work. Bottom line is at the end of the day, 
like the, the flock of Jacob has grown and the flock of Laban has diminished. Okay, now watch what the last verse of our text says. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob got rich, like really rich, like really, real, like filthy, like now he's a nation of people pulling out of this place. Like he was going to leave, remember he was going to leave with his four wives, his 12 kids and the clothes on their backs and whatever they could carry. Now, a few years later, he's leaving with a massive herd and a bunch, and like now he's a legitimate nation of people. So he's got this large family. He's got a, a huge staff, a bunch of employees. Like when it says camels and donkeys, now we don't just have sheep. Now we've got like value, like a lot, a lot, a lot of goods. So God is made. So what we've got is the bringing of Jacob into what is now the foreshadowing of the nation of the covenant. So let me give, let's, to land this plane, let's look at uh, about five observations um, and main points from the text. Observations and applications for us. And then we'll drive the one, what I, what I think is the main point of the text. We'll drive it home. So here's some observations. The foreshadowing and similarities of Jacob prospering under slavery and then leaving with the plunder of the homeland points us to a future, what would be a future Egyptian slavery and exodus. So compare, compare the two stories. Here you've got Jacob and what would become the 12 tribes leaving a foreign land and coming to what land God had promised them. And as they go, they pillage those who had enslaved them. And they go into this new land to establish themselves as the nation of covenant promise, as God's people. And many, many years later, Jacob's sons would go down into Egypt. And there they would grow into a huge nation that would then be enslaved by that people. But that would be brought out of that slavery, having pillaged all of the resources of that nation. And what is this? This is a greater motif or a greater theme. This is the history of how God works with his people. He calls his people and then he loves them and equips them and never leaves them. God is for his people. But God is for his people based on his covenant promises to his people. Like that, that is first and foremost why God is for his people. So the second main focal point has to be understanding how the covenant works. So when we go back to chapter 28... And we look at God's renewal of the covenant to Jacob, uh, Genesis 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. This is when he's got the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's reiterating that covenant. Behold, I'm going with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back into this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God promises that he won't leave him. He promises that he won't leave. God, like one of the beauties of the promises of Scripture is that God says, I won't leave you or forsake you. Like, like if you've lived through an abusive relationship 
or difficult divorce or terminal illness or the loss of a family member, most Christians that have experienced that will say, I felt the presence of God like I've never felt the presence of God in the darkest moment and the darkest hour. That's what makes us different than the world is the presence of God is constant in the life of the believer. God doesn't leave you like he does. Like God doesn't, God's not like, I, I, need, we, I need date night when to take a break from the kids. God's not like, I need a vacation. I need some me time. Like he is always for his people. He's always for the sons and daughters of his covenant promise. That's a beautiful doctrine that you see throughout scripture. Beautiful. It's powerful. Now here's the way covenant works. Covenant is not like contract. So like ancient covenant. So contract is... You know how contracts work. Two people enter into a contract. I'll give you this, you give me that. And in our society, you know, in other societies, it's like if you, do, if you don't uphold your end, then I get to cut your ear off or something like that. You know, we don't do it that way. It's more like I'll sue you, right? Like we will go to court. We'll be on Judge Judy and everybody will be laughing and it'll be entertainment for the rest. It'll be fodder for society. You know, we're going we're gonna to go to court. Well, in the ancient days, the practices of, of covenants, which looked like modern-day contracts, were I would say to you, here's what I'm going to, bring to the table and you'd say to me here's what i'm going to bring to the table we see a lot of covenants take place between people in scripture so we kind of learn and then but then there would always be something some statement like this may the lord do so to me and even more also if i don't uphold my end of the bargain so both people are saying yep it's like blood covenant you know and so typically what they would do is they would take animal they would take an animal they'd cut the animal in half they would separate the halves of the animal and they would, all that blood that would be there where they had split that animal would just perforate the ground, okay, and saturate the ground. So they would, they would cut the animal in half. Let's say, it's a, let's say it's a bull. They cut the bull in half. They take the two halves. They separate them. There's all of that blood. And the two men that were making the covenant together would lock arms and would walk and pass between the animal halves and walk over the blood. And so in doing that, they would ratify the covenant. And they're, and they're saying, if I break my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. You guys studied this back in Genesis 15, I'm assuming. So what God does when he comes to Abraham, if you'll remember, he has him cut all the animals up, a bunch of animals, separate them. And then he moves him to the side, causes a deep sleep to come on, and then wakes him up. And then God passes by himself through the animal halves. Remember that story? It's been a few chapters ago. And what is God saying? God's saying, you don't hold up any part of this covenant. I am sovereign. We love to talk about the sovereignty of God when it's convenient. But sometimes it gets real uncomfortable to to really lean on this idea that God is absolutely, emphatically in control of everything. Especially when you're going, what about the injustice? Why do we need a minister a ministry to, 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 to foster children and families. Wouldn't it be better if God would just kind of mend society? Well, he's going to. Like one of the promises that we have is that he's going to put all things right. Like, it, like if you read the book of, of Ecclesiastes, all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like just like drudge, like you're depressed at the end of every chapter. Like wicked people prosper, good people don't. Wicked people live a long, long time, good people die young. Like wicked wicked great good people bad like and you're reading through and you're like oh yeah i feel you man i feel you oh yeah like bad but this is a dark world and when's god gonna do anything about it finally at the end 
of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's like, let me narrow down how you live in this world. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obey God's commandments and know this. There is coming a day when God will put right all that is wrong throughout all of history. And what we have right now is the gospel, which is enough to sustain us Amidst the brokenness of humanity, the fallenness of the world, and the darkness of the demonic forces that are at work against us. We have hope. And so we look forward to a day when there will be a kingdom where there's no sin, ain't nobody crying, nobody's mamas die, there ain't no caskets, funerals, hearse, coffins. Like, no, like it's just happiness and joy forever. There ain't even going to be a sun. Don't need the sun to shine because the glory of Jesus radiates brighter than the sun, which you can't even look at right now with your human eye. Like, that's going to be good. But right now, we live in fallenness. And so you go back to God's covenant to Abram, and what God said is, you don't get to hold up any end of this covenant. I'm the covenant maker. I will be the covenant keeper. And over and over and over in redemptive history, we see man fail and fail and fail. In the last four weeks, every sermon from the last four weeks, there's been a reference to this. Why? Because it's a theme. It's a motif in Scripture. Man is an idiot. Paul, who's like the guy, like, if I could be like Paul, that's the guy. And he's like, oh, wretched man that I am. Like, that's an emphatic statement. Oh, he's ripping his, I'm wretched, I'm, in, I'm, I'm terrible, you know. And so what we see in the understanding how the covenant works is that in Genesis 28, God said, I'm making a covenant with you. Like, a bunch of stuff's going to happen, but in the end, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build a nation. Out of that nation, I'm going to grow a tribe. Out of that tribe that will come from one of the sons of Jacob, I'm going to grow a lineage. And out of that lineage, I will put a man on a throne who will establish a kingdom that will foreshadow an ultimate kingdom. And we will follow the thread of that man's lineage through harlots, prostitutes, like, like illegitimate births, all the way down to a Messiah who reflects the messiness of humanity. And he will come into this world. He will invade the darkness. He will pillage the, the kingdom of darkness of all of its resources push it back, and in resurrection power, he will give us hope and establish a new covenant that will never end. And that covenant will ratify, complete, and fulfill all of the covenants of old that started with Abraham and Noah and David and, and, and Moses with the Mosaic and the law. And that old covenant will be replaced. And that's why Jesus, right before he split and headed back up you know, to his rightful place on the throne of heaven, said like this, held up, we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus held up the goblet and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I will not drink this again until you are in my kingdom. And there's the hope that we'll sit down and what we symbolically represent when we do this, we will sit down with Jesus and we're going to have a big old feast and we will have communion in his physical very presence. So it's a fulfillment of all of the covenants of scripture and Jacob's just He's just pointing us to that. He's just pointing us to that. God begins a work. He will complete it. God had promised it. He's going to complete it. He's the author of our faith, and he will complete and perfect our faith. God cares for us. He cares for his people. He will never leave us, and he works for the welfare of his people. God's sovereignty is greater than Jacob's plans and efforts and Laban's schemes and wickedness. God's sovereignty works on both sides of this. Like when things are bad and you're like, well, God's sovereign, we can count on it. Yep, true. And when things are good, like God's sovereign, and this is just the benefit of his blessing. Yep, that's true. God's sovereignty overrides, supersedes, and undermines all of man's schemes. Like there's nothing that can, that's why Job says, like, who's going to thwart the plans of God? Nobody. 
It's a rhetorical question that Job asks. And it drives us to the final and main point of the text, which is this. Listen to what Jacob says a chapter later. Chapter 31, verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In that text, what he's saying is, the promises of God are fulfilled by God, period. Like, guys are going to kind of mix that up, mess that up. You're going to, like, and how many of us can look back at, like, just think about this practically. The decisions you've made in your life that should have ruined everything and sunk the ship. And God's bigger than that. And you might be in the middle of it right now. And you need to lean on some of, you, some of your brothers and sisters that can say, man, I, yeah, I've been there. I know, like, because there's, there's the old saying, there's like two types of people. Those that have experienced calamity and disaster and those who are going to. Because everybody's got, everybody's got it coming. Everybody stands over a casket you weren't expecting to stand over. We flew one of our families home from Mauritania, West Africa. Put that family there because uh, a brother was martyred and killed by Al-Qaeda in 2009. And we said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. We've got to put boots on the ground immediately because that ground is still wet with the blood of a martyr. Let's get them there. It took us 15 months to get them trained through language school and to West Africa. They spent four years there. They had a child. Had they had that child in Rome, Georgia, or Andrews, North Carolina, that child would have been born perfectly healthy, but instead she died. So we brought them in off the field. Kept them in Andrews for the last year, and now they're back over there with a healthy team and a strong support. But I remember standing over that coffin and doing that funeral. She's from West Texas, flew to West Texas, flew that baby home, went and did that, preached Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. That is a hard funeral to preach over six-week-old Ava. But I know this. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And the plans and schemes of nations and governments and kings will never thwart the redemptive plan of God in history. And that's not just a redemptive plan historically to the nations and the peoples of the earth. It's personal to every single one of us in this room. Because he is a personal savior. God didn't just care about the nation of Israel. He cared about Jacob and Dan and Naphtali and Gad. Every one of those sons and then their descendants and then their descendants. Because people matter to God. And the main point is that God will bless according to his promises. And in Christ, the scripture says, we have our yes and our amen. And all the promises of God are fulfilled. Amen? I'll pray. And let me challenge you with this. If you, if you don't know Jesus, we'd love to talk to you with, just about what that looks like to have a relationship with the Lord. And there will be pastors at the back. We can go into a time of worship through song. And, and, and in singing, what we're now doing is responding to the message of God's Word. And you need somebody to, to, to just pray with you, talk with you. There'll be pastors in the back that would love to do that. And, and, and let's respond to the Lord and worship as an offering to God as we, uh, as we submit to the authority of his word. God, I pray that you would help us to see in your word the great truths of your promises and the fact that in the, in the shenanigans of throwing sticks in a water trough and negotiating the terms of livestock... In the shenanigans of two decades of living under an oppressive, sinful force that the hope of Jacob 
was resting in the promises of God and the hope that we have rests in the promises of God. Thank you for Jacob's example of not trying to take the covenant matters into his own hands and, 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 and do for you what only you can do for you. Thank you for his example of hard work and submission and obedience. Help us to learn from that. Thank you for the promises that we have that you won't leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the promise that you are the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross so that you could defeat all the powers of darkness. And I pray this morning we would respond to you in obedience and worship. I pray for folks here that don't know you. God, I pray for somebody here that doesn't have a relationship with you this morning. They would call on the name of Jesus and be saved, gloriously saved. And I pray for those that might be hurting or in need, spiritually, emotionally, that you administer to them by the power of your Holy Spirit, the application of your word, and the fellowship of the church. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen.